Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. I am Liz Manischel. And today we are talking to Patrick James Lynch, the director of Bombardier Blood, also a filmmaker and advocate for people with bleeding disorders, and the CEO of Believe Limited, the overlords of this very podcast. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much. It's good to come down to see what all of you are working on over here. <laughs> <I know. laughs> exactly. We have to impress Coming him. down to the, the, the basement, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No windows. I'm impressed with what you can accomplish. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to just jump right into it. Uh, we, we start with our five questions about your film, uh, Barometer Blood. So I'll go first. Um, how many days did you shoot, BB? Well, everyone's interested in Everest. So the, there were two months, I think it was 59 nights on Everest. But uh, in total, production days was probably closer to about 100 all in. Ooh, wow. And yeah. uh, if you could talk about it, what was the rough budget? Or talk about what you could talk about? Sure, I appreciate that. So our budget, our, our production budget was $200,000. And that needed to do everything. So that was other than getting Rob to, so Rob was the one member of our team who's actually with our climber, Chris Bombardier on Mount Everest for the two months it takes to, um, to climb. And we knew we could only have that, that one guy there, but just even having him on Mount Everest for two months right off the bat was I think 30 grand, like just to have him there and fed and tent. So we had 200 to get from, you can make the film to it comes into the world, August 18th, 2020. Wow. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah, it was a it was a wild, wild uh, way to stretch a dollar. And then um, how long did you spend on working on the film from, you know, like the inception to it being released? Chris and I knew of each other. So I have severe hemophilia, bleeding disorder, as does he. And it's a small world. So he was the mountaineer with hemophilia. I was the filmmaker with hemophilia. So there was a meeting in 2016 in Vegas. He's from Colorado. I'm in Los Angeles. And he said, can we meet there? I want to talk to you about something. And he laid out this idea that was really compelling. I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but that was the moment. He had me at that moment, that lunch. I was like, I'm in, we have no idea how we're gonna get this funded. This is crazy, but the concept is brilliant. So let's do it. So that was March of 16 and here we are, August of 18. So four plus years, a little over four years. But still fairly efficient for what you were doing. I mean, like we talk about it like four, four year long years, but four years to do a documentary is nothing to sniff at. So you mentioned to crew size a little bit, but can you talk about how many uh, were, were there in total? Yeah, so we had a production team of four. We were four of us, my goodness. Um, yeah, so we had Josh Bragg, who is our cinematographer, and uh, A-Cam, Rob Bradford, our producer, B-Cam, mountain cinematographer and director, and then Dave Beatty of Iceman Studios was our sound engineer, and me. Uh, so we were a real skeleton, even when we were in the United States, that was about the size of our crew. Fortunately, we had a lot of experience working with each other prior to that, both on scripted films, docu, uh, here in the US, glo globally. So we had the right experience, but we were a skeleton crew. And then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? This was uniquely difficult because of the stakes, I would say. The fact that it was not only a film that had you know, $200,000 isn't isn't a lot of money, as we know, right? So it certainly was more than, the, I got a poster behind me here of elsewhere, a shoestring India did for less than 10000 to start. So 
by comparison, 200,000 is a luxury. So there were some stakes associated with that. We had a sponsor who there were some stakes associated with that. And of course, Chris is attempting to be the first person with this severe bleeding disorder to reach the top of Everest. And here we are filming that as it's taking place. And there's some, you know, questions and feelings about am I unduly influencing his decision-making and process by agreeing to be a part of this? Are we sending a bad message in any inadvertent way to people about risky behavior when you have uh, a, a severe chronic condition like Chris does? So I'd say from an emotional standpoint, um, <laughs> this was probably the most difficult project, but from a resource standpoint, at least being able to have something to start. It gave us the ability to create a vision that would get us going. And if we had no money to start, it would have been absolutely impossible just because the sheer costs to film on Everest, just to get there alone, it's just so expensive. Some of the questions you brought up are similar to the questions that people have brought up about Free Solo, right? The um, the impact of um, a documentary crew on whether someone takes risks. Also, there's a massive risk for you, right, Patrick? I mean, if you're... You're putting yourself at risk while you're making this movie, a physical risk. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, a lot of filmmakers will take risks and like put a lot out there, <laughs> but um, what, did you have any worries or concerns about your own health? Well, so unfortunately I wasn't on Everest. I was in Nepal with Chris and hiking with him throughout the U.S. when we had to get B-roll of him doing great hikes. And it's like, oh, we can only get that if we go with him, huh? So I had to push <laughs> my body and, and my hemophilia to, to some physical limits. But not going to Everest, I didn't have to face what would have very clearly been, even just to get to base camp. It's a 10-day trek. It's going almost 20,000 feet up. So it's just getting to base camp is a feat in and of itself. I didn't have to, to do that. So physically, I, I did not have those same risks. Again, emotionally, that meant I was going to have to be willing to release a lot of control in ways and put a lot of trust and faith in Rob and Chris and the Sherpa and mountain guide that we're going to be doing some of the filming on GoPros and just the universe. And that was that was tricky. You know, my ego struggled with that in the beginning. Um, it's hard to think my first feature documentary that's this big Everest, he's climbing it and it's my blood brother and it's and I'm not going to be there for those most critical moments, but it's not about me. So I was able to eventually get past that. And um, there's really no one I would rather have there. I'd rather have Rob there than me, if I'm being perfectly honest, too. So it also meant <laughs> I didn't have to learn all this stuff that I wouldn't have been as proficient at anyway. So it, it probably worked out for the best. Can, can you talk about that decision a little bit? Was that like something that you came to on your own where you're like, I, I, I am not up to go to Everest? Or was that like a team decision? Like, can you just talk about why it came out that way. You know, it's funny, I'll never forget because it was election night 2016. We had just gotten the yes. So March 16, Chris first asks me, we spend five, six months doing the pitching. And we had just gotten the yes. We had a scouting trip in San Francisco the next morning. So actually, Rob, Josh, Dave, myself, and Ryan, my partner in Believe, we were all together at this house in San Francisco watching the election. But before we were going to watch it, we had to make one decision, and that was how exactly were we going to start this Mount Everest documentary project that we had just gotten funded? Because um, when you go from the pitch to the actual, we have a project to do, there's uh, some new conversations that have to happen. And the first question was, who is directing? Whose baby is this? Who is making sure that it gets from A to Z? And um, I, I kind of, I, I would say you can't see this if you're listening, but my hand just sort of slowly went up. Like, I think that's kind of gotta be me. 
And I think in part, I knew to make this happen, we were all going to have to like pour ourselves into it. But if there was one person who had to take responsibility for being the director, being the vision keeper and tracking this thing across time, it was going to be me. So that, that night we made that decision and that was, that was important for me. It was important to ultimately, however, slowly get my hand up there and say, no, I'm mine. I got this. I can do this. But then there was that secondary. Yeah. Everyone wants to direct everyone. I mean, and you are a filmmaker. So were you hesitant or were you just coy? Like what was the like slowly moving hand? What does yeah. that mean? No, fair question. So I, a few things, I mean, there was definitely some insecurity about, do I have what it takes to do this? You know, this is, this is different. And of course every film and every project is different, but there was some legitimate fear in there. I was also aware that you Everest is a, there's a weather window. So it's only a couple months a year that it's possible to climb. And I was going to be getting married across the time that Chris was going to be on Everest. So I knew right off the bat, like, okay, well, uh, this is impossible. I can't get married in Portugal and be doing a film in Nepal at the same time. I am (laughs) talented, but not that talented. So I had to figure out a way to make all of that kind of work. And it just felt like the only way this works is if I take charge of it, but then also I'm willing to let go of a lot of the pieces um, because there's, there's not another way for me to, to make this film. And at the same time, I don't think there is someone else who should be in charge of the decisions that I'm saying I ought to be making. So I guess it was saying yes to directing something that I had fear about, that I couldn't have control over in the way as a director I would like to, uh, rightly or wrongly. I guess those two things more than anything kind of gave me trepidation to get my hand up there at first. We're really zooming in on this one moment, but um, (laughs) were there other hands also going up at the same time or was yours the only hand that was raising? I think it was one of those moments where like everybody's waiting for the person that everybody knows should put their hand up to put their hand up. Like it was kind of one of those like, and we'll sit and wait for Patrick to come to a realization. I will say Josh and I had some good conversations because he had similar thinking about the film from a cinematographer's perspective. I mean, the trek up to base camp, that 10 days in the film, we we have like a, a one minute virtually silent music montage of that 10 day trek. But my goodness, the beauty of that alone. And then to be able to be on base camp and prepare, like Josh had similar visions initially that I did to what our participation on the mountain could look like. But then he also had life and health reasons that it wasn't going to make sense. And then ultimately our budget was like, I, Josh, you're going to have to really, really, really talk me into this because I, I don't think we have the budget, even if you were, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we have the budget, man. So he, he was in a similar place. I think that kind of helped me too, because I knew I wasn't the only person who was having to kind of uh, merge the artistic and producer brains to just make the most of the opportunity we had and not try to let the perfect become the enemy of the good. I, again, I know we're going back in time a little bit, but you said you were waiting for a yes and you got the yes. Was it one investor who put the entire budget in or was it multiple sources? It was primarily one investor. And then we had some additional post-production funding come through from a second organization but it was primarily one investor. So there's a, a fellow by the name of Wolfgang Maguer, and he is the uh, president and CEO of Octopharma. Octopharma is a global biotech company. And interestingly enough, while you'll see Octopharma's name next to other giant mega biotech pharma companies, Bayer's of the world and places like that, it's actually a privately owned company, which makes it very unique. So Wolfgang and his family and executives, they, act, they run this thing as much as you could run a company of that size as a family business, they do. So that meant from a procedural standpoint, 
if Wolfgang and Octopharma as being a, a, a sponsor who would have interest in, they, they make drugs in the hemophilia space, so they had interest in the film. If they were on board procedurally, we may be able to move at a, a, an expedited pace, which we were going to have to given the timeline and get through some of the legal and regulatory red tape that so often slows up the kind of work that we do do with these kinds of funders on other projects. So from a logistics standpoint, we thought great partner. And then more importantly, Wolfgang McGuire at the time was the uh, number one sponsor of children with hemophilia living in poverty worldwide through the organization that Chris as the climber was seeking to shine light on. So we thought, okay, in spirit, this guy appreciates the mission of this organization. He's taking it on on a very personal level, in addition to Octopharma being a major sponsor of, of children as well. If he hears this mission, and then his company has the ability to say yes and work with us on making this happen in a logistical, reasonable, safe way, then this might be the only way it can happen. Because the other companies in our hemophilia bleeding disorders world, which might have an interest in Chris, because as much as I love Chris Bombardier, North Face wasn't knocking down our door, right? Like we're not at that, of Mountaineers, we weren't gonna get sponsors like that. So who has interest in us? Well, the hemophilia companies, they have interest. But then of course, hemophilia is a physical condition that, uh, you know, he's saying, hey, I wanna climb Everest. The, the lawyers go a little like, uh, I don't know about that. So. <laughs> We knew if it wasn't going to be Wolfgang and Octopharma, we might have a real, real tough slog ahead of us. And again, Everest has two months a year that you can. So our timeline was super tight. And fortunately, it was the only pitch that we had to make. It worked and it rarely goes that way, but sometimes it does. Did they have any stipulations in terms of how the brand was portrayed in the film? Well, actually, I did. I told them early, I will not put... Octopharma in the film. I will not promise you anything wow. in the film. Um, within the hemophilia world, when we do screenings and we do talkbacks, if you want to work with us on the framing and the talkback structure and how those are implemented, that's, I think, where your big promotional value comes. That's the target audience. The film itself, which is intended for a worldwide audience, I'm not promising you a single thing about it. And well done. Well, yeah. I'm so happy about that. That's <laughs> yeah, fantastic. seriously. I, it was just like there's no other way we can do this credibly. And to their extraordinary credit, they said okay, and they sh they should get a lot of credit for that. As it turned out, they wound up being in the film because part of answering questions about how did Chris's climbs take place, there's a financial component to that. So before we got to Everest and had to establish like how is this guy? We see where he lives. We hear what he's talking about in terms of struggles. How is he getting there? We had to answer a story question by introducing this company and one of their representatives. So there's a 60, 75 second sequence where they are featured and in a way that I feel totally great about because it answered a story question. But if I had to wedge that in there from Jump Street, I would have been so resentful of it and it would have never, it would have been terrible. So to their credit, they said, okay. And then, hey, they wound up benefiting from that because they wound up in the film anyway. Can you talk about like, what's happening while the climb to Everest is happening? Like, are you in contact with them at all? Like, are you getting f notes or not notes, but like um, updates of like how the trek is going? Cause I mean, like, I just want to clarify, people still die on Everest, right? Like that, that's still a thing that happens every year. So, I mean, that's pretty, must be pretty nerve wracking and scary and just a tough thing to deal with as a director. Right. I will say, so I can say this now. I don't think we should be climbing that mountain anymore. I, I, I'm i not a mountaineer um, to begin with. And then in getting ready for this, 
I, I was doing my homework responsibly, but the more I was doing my homework, there was a, I started getting to a point where I was like, this isn't helping me. I now know what I need to know about mountain climbing. Chris is an expert. Rob knows the outdoors. Our editor, Steven Sander, an amazing Emmy award-winning 30 for 30 editor. He did the um, Of Miracles and Men ESPN 30 for 30 about the Russian hockey team's experience of, do you believe in miracles? Yeah. <laughs> He's brilliant and he loves mountains. He wanted to do an Everest documentary. So I was like, okay, fantastic. There's enough people here that if I choose this as my escape hatch for I can't listen to any more stories of the horrors of Mount Everest, then cool. You guys will keep me accountable to the things that maybe I need to know, like how far up base Camp 3 is, for example. But then when Chris got down, I resumed watching films like Sherpa. Yeah, it just does not feel like that mountain really ought to be climbed anymore. Chris actually met, this is interesting, Chris met an, a world-famous climber named Uli Steck while he was on Everest. And Uli, I think he's, I think he was, well, was Swedish. I don't recall exactly, but he, his claim to fame was the speed at which he would climb these summits. So he was attempting to set speed records all over the world by going uh, without supports and just, you know, going for it. The day after he met Chris, he slipped, he fell, he died. And in fact, he, his body, not to be too morbid here, but crashed and splattered in front of the Sherpas from Chris's climbing team. So Rob actually recounts it really emotionally because so interestingly enough, Rob's not there for the climbing. So when the nine or 10 climbers that were part of Chris's team would do their rotations and all the acclimation work that you do for those two months. Rob was hanging out back at base camp. So it was him and, and, and the Sherpers who uh, did not speak English. So it was a very interesting exchange that Rob would describe. But he said they came back from that and there was this, there was this, this spirituality that they brought to it and they immediately went into this, um, the, this kind of prayer, I suppose, where there was a, a celebration of his life and there was no fear of the emotion that came up with that. And they just processed it as a group immediately with a celebratory, he lived a beautiful life. And Rob just talks about witnessing all of that and not have just, I can only really imagine what that must have been like, but what a profound moment where you see these individuals very privately sort of processing the most harrowing part of what they do. And let's be clear, the people who have the most risk on that mountain are the Sherpas. The Sherpas are the ones who are going up and down with the gear, setting lines. This, that's who is most at risk on these mountains. So when someone like Uli falls, they're thinking about their family and friends for whom that has also happened because unfortunately Mount Everest is a very dangerous mountain and it's one of the, the jobs that these Sherpas have on the mountain, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I guess is one of the most desirable for this peep, this Sherpa people. Cause it's actually, um, it's a, it's an ethnic group. They, the, the Sherpa people, it's not just a job. People think, oh, a Sherpa is like a porter. Yes, and it's in the Sherpa's task, but a Sherpa is actually an ethnic group of people that lives over here in the mountains. So there's only so many jobs on Mount Everest and this happens to be one of the best ones. So yeah, just a totally bizarre experience. Two days after that, I was filming with Chris's mother and wife in Denver for the only time that I would be filming with them in the period that Jessica, his wife would be home because she was with him in Nepal and then traveled back once she reached base camp. The time that she'd be home before Chris got home was like a 30 day window or a 40 day window. And we had two or three days that overlapped and that was it. It was like, okay, those are the two or three days we got to go to Colorado and get all of our catch up interviews. 
and it was two days after Uli Steck died. So the some of the emotion, I see it when I watch it, you wouldn't know it necessarily, but some of the emotion that's coming up as Jess and, and Chris's mom are speaking at times, um, I know it's informed by our accepting the stakes are high and we've known that and we're not shying away from that, but we're not sitting in that. And at the same time, Uli Steck passed away. So we have to acknowledge that. And it was intense. It was really, really intense for a while. And Chris is still on the mountain at that time, you know, having not reached the, the summit. Right. So it's like, Correct. who knows what's going to happen? Jeez, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. It was still ahead for him. And, and he had to come, he also kind of like had to come back and receive that. And then they go back out for more rotations and, yeah, it's a very strange, it's a very strange place, Everest. And I'd actually, in addition to Bombardier Blood, which I hope everybody watches, the filmed Sherpa is excellent and was being filmed to capture the life of a Sherpa on Mount Everest and tell the Sherpa's story. And then it happened during uh, a horrific earthquake in Nepal that changed everything. So the film, of course, changed its focus and it really lets the viewer into the culture, the politics, the disparities, the abuses, the tension between the Sherpas and the local people, and then the foreigners, as they call them, who's coming to Everest is such an economic engine for one of the poorest countries in the world, and yet at the same time leads to so much death and sadness, and ultimately the government gets most of the money, not the Sherpas. So that's a great film if people are really interested in like the the nuances of Everest. We don't get into all that because our film isn't about that, but it's a the mountain. That's why I say I don't think that mountain. Just leave it alone. Just let that mountain be for a little while. Maybe we can revisit <laughs> right. it in five years, but let's give it a break. Switching gears slightly, I just wanted to, because I think a lot of people will hear, this is your first feature documentary. You nabbed one investor from a major corporation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also you, you nabbed an amazing executive producer who is pretty influential and has a pretty big name, Alex Borstein. How did that come into being? I guess there's a version of this, but that sounds like a real sweet cakewalk of a project. Huh? It's a guy sits down <laughs> with you, pitches a thing, you tell one person, they invest. Alex says yes. Um, so Alex, ha her brother has severe hemophilia. She grew up as a carrier of hemophilia and actually has mild hemophilia, as does her daughter. And I think in she has said this, if I'm remembering correctly, but it was really her daughter's birth that spurred her to want to do more for the hemophilia, the National Foundation and, and local advocacy groups. So, so for the last seven, eight years, I've known her uh, just from hemophilia events. We've just been at different things together as speakers and presenters and both in entertainment. So had something to chat about over cocktails and stuff. And then when this was at a certain place, I just asked her for a five minute call to give her give her the elevator pitch and be very frank that I had something I was super proud of that I thought could be the piece of media that reached more people around the world about hemophilia than anything that's ever been created. And that would do so with a positive, inspiring face. Cause so often when hemophilia or rare disease of any kind is in media, it's not an, maybe it's inspiring and sort of a end of the news uh, kind of like, Hey, isn't life great sort of way. But so often it's actually, it's not positive. It's, it's, it's dreary and it's heavy. And this was an opportunity to put positivity and inspiration and hope and empowerment out there through Chris and his journey. And she got that. So I, I sent her the cut. I was proud of where it was before I asked her, I sent it to her and she, within 24 hours, she, yes. And here's the strategy that we're going to move forward with. So 
you know, she was, I, I honestly, if, if there's a lesson here, it's targeting well, right? Like Wolfgang and Octopharma were excellent targets. Alex was an excellent target because I've certainly whiffed on plenty of pitches and asking other people to come on board projects as well. But because this was so specific, because I was uniquely well positioned to be in this position I was in, and frankly, because Chris, the climber is who he is, and that's, that's the bottom line. Uh, and to meet him, you get, okay, he's legit. This guy's the real deal. I think that's why I got yeses in what may seem like a pretty smooth fashion. I don't think this is, <laughs> I don't think this is exemplary of how it usually goes. I think this was just something very specific with the right people that was then targeting very specifically too. Then when someone like Alex comes on to a project, what is she bringing? Is it just her like celebrity and her name and her influence and able to get more exposure or is she actually bringing a dollar amount as well on top of that? Like, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and I think it's different with every relationship to an executive producer. In the case of Alex, when we went to her, we were specifically asking for her to bring her name, her promotional abilities, and her front-facing sort of value, so to speak, to this. Financially, we, she was, I mean, I want to I be appropriate, she was willing to contribute, but I made clear what we actually need from you most of all is just for you to be in. So we didn't accept any money, though it was... Um, proposed. She's actually, she has made some significant donations to Save One Life, to the organization that the film is ultimately seeking to try to help um, generate some more attention for. But yeah, so for us, it was about the promotion. It was about getting the cast of Maisel to come out to the New York City screening that we did. It was about doing the interviews that she's doing right now for the release from Barcelona, uh, uh, tweeting about it and Instagramming about it at any key point in time. So yeah, she's been available for all of that not on the oh and creatively too she was a part of the last cut so that's kind of interesting too she stayed very much out of it creatively we had some good conversations though this is this is good to mention we had some good conversations about ownership and she said early you know i'm gonna now when i refer to this talk about my movie and say my movie and things like that a lot and i, I don't mean that to offend you but when i'm talking to people who are interested in what i'm doing or it's about like that's how i'm gonna get them excited I was like, you don't have to explain this to me at all, but I appreciate that because that's very thoughtful. And I do think that's an important thing for an executive producer and directors and kind of key creatives to discuss a little bit is some of that language and to make sure you're not stepping on toes. I, however, knew that that meant she was taking ownership of it in a way that would get people to respond to her. I didn't care if people responded to me. I just want them to watch Bombardier Blood. So that was also very important. And when I heard that, I thought, great, we've got We've got everything we could ask for. And we came close. We came close with getting this um, on Amazon, which is obviously where she is with uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And then we, we had some other opportunities, too, with some networks that I, I don't know if COVID did or did not ultimately play a role. You know, people will say, like, oh, our plans changed or the budget changed or the timeline changed. And I'm sure that's true. But it also becomes a very easy thing to point to if you're like, all right, after a lot of consideration, we're going to go in a different direction. So we had some other opportunities, too, that I was hopeful with our combined forces, we might be able to cross the finish line on, but um, you know, that wasn't to be the case. However, I say that in an era now where VOD is like, that's what it is. I mean, right now we're living through a period where like there's really no better time you could be releasing something VOD. So 
uh, the world works in mysterious ways. If, and if you're making a documentary, you just got to learn to go with it. I have, I have come to appreciate that too. You don't have as much control as you think. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about the, the impact distribution aspect of the film and also the distri- distribution plan. So where is it out right now? And also what was the timing of, of the release based off of your goals for impact? Yeah, good question. So we, so Chris's climb of Mount Everest was his sixth of seven climbs uh, for the seven summits, the highest mountain on each continent. So after Everest, there was still one mountain remaining. That was Mount Vincent in Antarctica, which he then climbed in January of 2018. In November or October of 2018 was our first uh, screening of any kind for about 800 people at uh, National Hemophilia Foundation's annual Bleeding Disorders Conference. I, I love this part. It was a 7 a.m. Saturday morning screening because we were like shoving <laughs> oh this God. into this conference. Like this conference <laughs> is the worst loaded. slot ever. Be- yeah, best time slot to show a movie, <laughs> yeah. especially a dramatic movie, 7 a.m. 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning, day three of a conference that's going all day every day. The room was jam-packed, standing room only. We had people outside making sure because fire marshal stuff came up. The appetite for this was enormous. And I knew it, it would be within the hemophilia world. So we had that ten, that nine, 10 months to get from, okay, we've got all the mountains and most of the interviews and everything in the can to our first screening of any kind. And then from then until, I guess now almost two years later, so the film is publicly around the world, August 18th, 2020. So about two years later, we did over a hundred screenings for patient advocacy groups, schools, community centers, refugee camps, mountain climbing organizations, a couple film festivals are use the word impact. And our goal was to try to reach as many people who would be motivated by the message of the film. So that's why schools and patient advocacy groups, uh, teaching hospitals and universities, libraries, I think Bombardier Blood, it's a nice mix of, it's a piece of entertainment, but there is some substantial learning behind it while going on this really intimate journey of one individual's, you know, David versus Goliath type quest. But when I think about what's available for a number of different patient groups, universities and medical centers when they're teaching young hematologists. I've been a part of some of these workshops and I see the material they have to like learn about patients and the experience. And it's just not terribly compelling a lot of the times. It's dry. And so I have I was pushing how this could really inspire people who in their 20s are thinking about what they want to specialize in medically for the rest of their lives. And we are in a disease state where there's not a whole lot of money from a business standpoint. So the people who get involved they generally get involved because they're really interested. So let's try to cultivate some more of that. So the strategy was really on how could this film do just that, benefit the people within the bleeding disorders community and help educate through these formats that people would not necessarily expect to see a film of this caliber come through. A patient advocacy conference, they're not expecting a documentary like Bombardier Blood to be a keynote presentation. But then when you screen that for 500 people and talk about advocacy through media, and talk about disparity of care as exemplified in the film. The conversation is so much deeper and and motivating than if I did a keynote PowerPoint or, you know, showed some more traditional promotional type video. So that was really the focus of these last two years. And now the last couple of weeks, it's shifted pretty dramatically to 
as many eyeballs around the world as possible. It went from, you know, where can we make the biggest impact just to let's get it out there. Cause I, I believe this is a word of mouth film. I think most films ultimately are word of mouth films, but with this one in particular, I do think it's the kind of thing that when people see it, if it affects them, it affects them in a way that they take action. And if it doesn't, all right, fair on you. Not every film is for every person, but for those for whom it does, I think they tell friends and family and, um, and I guess we'll see. The proof is in the pudding. We're like two days away from it becoming globally available, which is a little insane after all this. So it's it's. I appreciate being able to kind of process some of this with you guys in real time because in a couple of days we're on the other side of a moment, and um, and it doesn't come back. You know, it's exciting. So I have one last question, and this is probably a very nerdy question, but um, my favorite from that first from that first screening two years ago to now. Did you guys do any changes to the edit or did you just say lock done and we're forgetting it and like, oh, that little thing that I wish I could change, forget it, I can't change it. Or did you go back and meddle in that time? Oh, we meddled. Uh, we did so many jokes about like the use of the term final cut. I don't know who's worse, either <laughs> the editor or me. And then like Josh is just dead set on making it all work. So it's just a bunch of terrible enablers, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, there was a lot. There was a lot. I. The, the thing that was most interesting to me, and I think as a filmmaker, there's a lesson for me to take forward. The first time we showed a rough, that was the most informative, the first rough that we showed, and we had filmmaker people there, we had uh, bleeding disorder advocate people there, and we had just friends, normal people there. And of course, everyone had different comments and feedback, helpful. Some of it's like, that's crazy, I never heard. And then other things, oh, I never thought of that. But there was one thing in particular that the room of 40-ish people was as divided on as possible. And then in my subsequent conversations, I found no, <laughs> there was no more coalescing. Uh, and it taught me I had to make a decision. For the sake, if you see the film, um, this isn't going to give anything too much away. Hemophilia has a dark history. And there was a period where HIV and hepatitis affected 90%, 9-0 of people with severe hemophilia, the vast majority of whom have since passed away as a result of the hep C or HIV. Chris and I were born the year that heat-treated medicine enabled those viruses, those pathogens, to be removed from the medicine that was derived from blood product, which is how those viruses got in there to begin with. So we are literally at the beginning of this first healthy generation, which is, um, it, which is very significant. And I knew that while Chris didn't have HIV or hep C, didn't have or lose a brother to one of those things or a father to one of those things, we have a lot of friends who, for whom that is their story, and it's our community story. So I knew it was on his mind. I knew it was in his heart, and that when he was climbing, that that was a part of it too. And that wasn't the part he was talking about as much. He was talking about global disparity and bringing awareness to that. But I knew the older guys and the trauma of our community. I knew there was a, an element of healing for all of them in what he was doing too. I get goosebumps talking about this. So when we first showed people what was a five-minute uh, four minute sequence on HIV AIDS and hemophilia. Some people said like, that's so important. I'm so glad you had no idea. And then other people were like, that's such a, what are you talking about? Like what a left turn. I can't, that's way too much. That's its own documentary. And so in processing that it came down to Chris and I making a decision. And I told him, I think what people are ultimately responding to is an unpolished edit of that sequence. I think the people who are saying get rid of it are telling me it's too long, it's too many movements, it needs to go quicker. You know, we got to come back to the trunk of the tree more quickly. I think cutting it is wrong, but what they're responding to is there. 
And so I made the choice to go from, it was a kind of a three song, three act movement to a one song, one act, 75 seconds. Like here's a quick sprint through HIV and hepatitis and hemophilia and we're back to our narrative. And since I made that change, I've heard not one single negative or constructive criticism comment about that segment. I have, if anything I hear, thank you for putting that in there. My brother, my father, my whoever, thank you. So that was a moment of having to make a decision. And it kind of goes back to that first conversation with the team in San Francisco where slowly raising my hand to be the director. It was moments like that that I was raising my hand for, right? Like, okay, I couldn't be on the mountain, but ultimately the director just has to make some decisions and, and live with them. And some people will like them and some people won't. And that's okay, that's part of it. But I knew I was doing everything I could to uh, get as much feedback. And I am a consensus leader. I do wanna make sure that a team feels like it's not just top down do this, but we're all part of something together. But then when the moment presents itself, because I operate that way, I feel very confident in saying, director, I gotta make this choice, we're going this way. And as soon as Chris and I were in agreement, there was no looking back. Also sounds like you were just interpreting the note behind the note. Like you were the so one important. who, yeah, who figured it out. It's so important. I, I mean, I, as an actor, as a writer, as a producer, as a director, as any kind of creative, the note behind the note, I, I don't know if that could be stressed enough because it's so easy to get defensive or, or like when a note comes in to just start backpedaling in ways that don't allow the processing. And once the processing starts, it's like, okay, where in here is the thing that I can respond to? Because usually it's not exactly what comes in, but I think almost always there is something there. There's always something there. When I hear other creatives talk about like, oh, that person just doesn't get it. Or like, ah, da, 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 this kind of like dismissive remarks. Every time I'm just like, that's a mistake. There's something there. I don't know what it is either, but there's something there and you got to pay attention to it. I love that. All right. Well, we are at our final five questions. So that's when we look at our long view at someone's career. So our oh, first boy. question is... Well, I is... hope this has been fun. I hope this has been interesting before the <laughs> long view. I feel like we've done a lot of the long view. I'm probably talking too much, but let's keep it going. This is the first question. What is the first film you've ever made and how do you feel about it now? Well, um, I guess Elsewhere. Elsewhere is the first feature film that I made and I adore it. It's my baby. It's It's the little engine that could. It proved to me that I could take something from close to nothing with almost nothing except all the right people and uh, make it happen. It gave me a confidence that I would not have been able to make Bombardier Blood without. And what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? You only get so many chances to make your movie. So when I was making Elsewhere, after a rough cut yet again, and when those notes came in yet again, uh, it's a film. It's a film about a band, and one of the notes that was came in a lot was, "Wait, who exactly is in the band?" So that's like the bassist, and that's the keyboard player. Who's the drummer? And it doesn't friggin' matter. And I, I used to like turn to others and be like, "It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why do they keep asking about who's in the band? Who gets it? Who cares who's in the band?" But then I was like, "Hey, Patrick, you don't get to like sit next to the audience members and say that to them when they're watching your film. So if people have that question, whether you think it's material or not, it matters." So I was I was complaining about this to a filmmaker who I really really expect, uh, respect, and I was like, "Yeah, I mean, people like if we did this thing, then maybe we could, but I don't know." And we were in the car. I remember we were going to a Clippers game. We were in the parking lot, just sort of sitting there, and he was like, "You know." Everything you're saying makes sense. You've put a ton into this, more than anyone who's working on it thought. If you said this is it, no one blinks. But if you think you know how you could make it better, you only get so many chances to make your movie. 
and you don't want to not do something that you could look back on for decades and say, I could have done that. And, and I, I was so, I, the moment he said that, I was like, damn it. Cause I knew, I knew it. <laughs> I knew in that moment, I was like, I got to start fundraising. I got to call everybody. We got to fly people to LA. We got to rent the Troubadour. Like it, I knew as soon as he said that it just was going to mean a bunch of stuff, but he was dead right. And so I'd say the same thing to anybody listening. There are only so many chances. Make the most of every single one. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker, whether it's quantity or quality awards, whatever, however you interpret that question? Well, very candidly, one of the, the next thing I'm working on is a documentary on Ryan White, who became the face of HIV AIDS when he was diagnosed at 14, wants to go back to school, was barred from school, fought to go back and then became Time Magazine in the first 25 years of their magazine. They published a 25th anniversary piece, 25 most influential people. Number eight or nine was Pope John Paul II. Then the person ahead of him was Ryan White. And ahead of him <laughs> was the guy in standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square. So it's like, that's where we put this person historically. And there is not a documentary about him. He had Michael Jackson and Elton John calling the house, visiting him. Elton John managed the hospital while he died. Look at those guys' tour schedules from 88 to 90. Two of the most prolific music artists of all time at the peak of their powers. And they just want to hang out with Ryan White. I've been working with his mother and family on this film for six or seven years. Um, she continues his mother. He died in 1990, 30 years later. She's still telling his story and, and, and uh, talking about the importance of choosing love over fear when we face the unknown. And my God, she has said so many things over the last number of years that have exactly called to what we're experiencing now with COVID and the inability for us to like grapple with these problems that are just larger than us. So we have to point fingers and other eyes. Oh, it's their problem. It came from here. And rather than just working together to solve the thing that could ruin us all. So that project in terms of goals, um, that, that one's different. And I feel like I actually said this to Jeannie yesterday to Ryan's mother. I was on the phone with her and I told her I've seen the first cut of our film which I watched for a third time two days ago. And, um, and I was like, Jeannie, it's amazing. We have so much work to do, but it's amazing. And what makes me happiest is I now know that if you and I were in a car that was hit with, by a bus that went on fire, this exists, this exists. And Ryan's story and your family's story and the importance of it and the voices of people from 30 years ago who will not be here 30 years from now, it exists. And I wanna see it through and I want us to be there together for it. But if we get hit by a bus and it goes on fire, we know it exists. And, and she heard that. And it was a very special moment, actually, as a filmmaker, because it, it, it helped me process a bit of just how much I've carried um, that in a personal place. And so I think getting that film out in the next two years will that's that's my goal. That's my goal. And there's a lot more work to do. But that's the thing I've taken on. That's a responsibility that's about so many people beyond just me. And I believe artists have a responsibility and this I've taken on as a responsibility. So it's the one I have to focus on. And until it's done, nothing else is more important. Amazing. I, I love that answer, by the way. That is like what all filmmakers search for is that thing that is so important to them, that film that they can't, you know, can't stop working on until it's done. It's a special thing to have. So, you know, it is. Awesome. And to work towards. Yeah. Uh, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? If I could go back in time, one piece of advice would be to say the scary stuff sooner. 
And I mean that more personally than professionally, but really both are true. You know, like a lot of artists, I have a very active mind. I get anxious, I get depressive, I get worried. I get, my brain is very active. And I work with such great people who are also externally, external processors, many of them. And what I've come to realize over the last number of years with them socially, with my wife, with my therapist, is just the sooner I say the thing that scares me most or bothers me most, the sooner we move past it. Or the sooner I find a teammate who's like, yeah, me too. And here's what I've been working on. And now we're making progress. But when I don't, those things just sit and swirl. My work is worse. My overall quality of life is worse. My sense of direction and purpose is worse. And it's also something I found myself saying as a director to the actors and elsewhere all the time, because we had so little time and there was trepidation in moment. And I, my background is first as an actor. So I think that's where I have, as a director, that's one of, I believe, my strengths is speaking with actors and just asking them like, just please look at other people and say the scary things. Like that's, that's, what the, that's what we're watching. A film is not about a normal day where everything is fine. So when in doubt, feel the fear and do it anyway. And I think that's just a good life lesson, but especially for artists, because it, I think for artists, the fear can be so overwhelming because of how, I don't know, fragile our, our place in society is. That sounds so like trite in some ways, but I just think it's, if you're like a banker who's feeling insecure, I mean, not to, hey, bankers out there, no, I don't mean anything by this, but I just feel like there's something to support you. There's precedent, there's... There, there's X's and O's that can give you a, 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 a soft place to land in a way that if like you're an artist just struggling to make it, who's not overly concerned about, uh, I, it just feels like it's a much more fragile way to, to exist. Well, we're not being valued, I think is also what you're not saying. Artists aren't valued properly. And so you have to society. fight for your place and you have to create it because yes, you're not going to necessarily find the value is coming towards us. We have to, you have to demand the right to be there to speak your truth and to show people that when you do, and this is what I love about being at the point of my career that I'm at, I have enough stuff in my portfolio that I can point to, look, here's what we did. Here's the impact it had. That's why we do it. Here's what we want to do next. Here's our plan for how it's going to happen. Do you really doubt that we're going to do it? And you know, you get to a point and if you've done it enough, you get to, you get to say, look, I can, I, I know I can do this. It doesn't make it easier because there is not, there is not the value for the arts that there should be. But, you know, I guess too, Liz, that goes back to what we talked about with, with funders and targets. It's, you don't need, it's like selling or buying a house, right? You don't need everybody. You just need one. You need one person who's going into an open house to say, this is my dream house. I want to buy this house. You only sell it to one person. No film, no piece of art is for everyone. No perspective or worldview is for everyone. So the sooner I'm speaking my truth and speaking to that, which makes me afraid, the sooner I find those who believe similarly to the way I do, who want to work in similar ways, who view the world and, and the needs that an artist can meet in similar ways. Okay, now we're a gaggle. Now we've got some power. Now it's not just me. Now we're like a little small army and, and you can do this and you can do that and you can do that and you can do that. Guys, we can create something that tens of hundreds of maybe millions of people can see. So... It's not easy, but speaking the truth, you'll find your people and just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. As you were talking, I was like, faces were flashing in my mind of people that I thought were in my tribe. And I was like, oh, those are such nice faces to think about right now. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> our final question, really the most important, really that requires the most amount of thought and response, uh, is making movies hard, Patrick? Yeah, but worth it. Like, I as a kid, you know, going, I, I had hemophilia, I had a lot of problems, I missed a lot of school, I wasn't in extracurricular activities, I didn't have a lot of friends, I spent time in different houses with different family members. The thing that grounded me was my imagination, primarily cultivated through films. And and I'm very thankful that I had a grandmother who herself was an artist, who herself was a kid who grew up with polio in a hospital and with music. And so she defaulted to music in ways that made sense to me. And she was able to show me how art and for me film could help me escape, connect, identify, hope, just, it was everything. and. I know I have to remind myself, especially when it gets hard, when it gets very hard, when making movies gets very hard, <laughs> I have to remind myself because, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? Who cares? Who needs Patrick James Lynch to make another bit of blah, 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 blah. But actually, that's not an appropriate way to think about it, because there are people out there. There are kids out there. There are adults out there. There are all kinds of people out there who I have already made an impact on their lives through the work I've done. And I know that because they've told me. So if I stop, then I stop that. And I can, that's my right, it's my life. But why? What am I gonna stop that to go do? What's more important, what's more interesting and exciting than creating art that changed people's lives? So yeah, making movies is hard. If there is something you'd rather go do that will fill your cup, kismet. But if this is for you, don't give up. Keep listening to people like Ulrich and Liz. Keep listening to people who you find are exciting your passions for making films. Keep seeking information. And you just never know when the right partner, the right project, the right conversation, you really don't. You really don't. So you just have to stay in the race and take care of yourself and other people as, as you do. Hmm. Thank wow. you. Beautiful. Amazing. Where should people go if they want to A, learn more about you or B, more importantly, watch uh, Bomb Under Your Blood? Yes, bombardierblood.com. So B-O-M-B-A-R-D-I-E-R, blood.com. You can watch the trailer. You can pre-order or order the film. You can find the links on social. Um, you can find me through there as well, but patrickjameslynch.com or on the social handles will lead you to me as well. Feel free to reach out and ask questions. I'm always happy to talk to other artists and filmmakers. Fabulous. Yay. Everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks to Patrick James Lynch for being on the show. Thanks to Bloodstream Media, Believe Limited, for everything they always do for us. We're very grateful. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where we can find links, where everyone can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Right uh, at MMIH podcast. I'm at Liz Manischel on Twitter, Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. Ulrich, where are you? I am Ulrich B on Twitter and on Instagram, and Ulrich Brussel on Facebook. If you like the show, tell a friend, help us get the word out, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, email us, anything. We're here. We're very here. Finally, thanks to our producers, Greg Holtzman, Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Colby Crow, the Holtz Bloodstream Media team uh, for making this episode possible. And we will talk to y'all next week. Liz, will you do the honors? Will you take us out of this episode? Oh, God. Okay. Um... <laughs> I have to remember what I'm supposed to say. Uh, okay. Um, 
<laughs> crap, I still don't know. Uh, okay.